Uh, great to be with church family again. Welcome back if you've just come back off holidays or uh, this is your first time with us. Really, really warm welcome. Uh, I'm Phil. I'm part of the team here with Simon and uh, numbers of others. And just, yeah, good to be in the house. And I just wanted to quickly say, next week we have a Mercury Prize winner as our guest speaker. Next week we've got TJ Collioso. He's part of a, a band some of you may have called, heard uh, called the Ezra Collective. Ezra Collective won the best UK album uh, this, just this last week. Um, TJ is an amazing communicator of the gospel, an amazing Christian man, brilliant musician uh, from North London, and he's going to be with us next Sunday. So I just want to say this is going to be like one of the easiest invites to church that you will ever have, because you can say to your friends, do you fancy coming and hearing a Mercury Prize winner speak? And they cannot say no to that, can they? So just to say, uh, please look out for that and make most of that opportunity to get people in the building. It'd be great to have lots of guests here. All right, well, we, we are going to cover a lot of ground today. And if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to Galatians chapter 1. And uh, we are going to get cracking once I sort my clock out. My clock has decided to turn from digital to analog, and that's no good to me. So we're just going to make it up. Great. Well, listen, last week, Simon kicked off our series in the book of Galatians, where we're going to be for the next uh, few weeks together. I just encourage you to be reading uh, the letter to the Galatians in your own time at home, so that when you come to church, you are already in the flow of the arguments. So often in Scripture, we are reading an unfolding argument, and it helps us just to get the context by having read the story. So just to encourage you to get into the book of Galatians, um, and we are going to do the next section today in chapter 1, verse 11. Strap in your seatbelts. Off we go. All right. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach the gospel to the Gentiles, my immediate response wasn't to consult any human being. I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, which is not bad. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Amen. Well, listen, there's a lot going on. You may be thinking, what the heck was all that about? Hopefully by the end you'll have more of a clue, <laughs> and so will I. Um, and I'm going to give you the headline before I tell you the joke, okay? So the headline of all that we've just read is this. Only Jesus can save, and this was God's idea. Okay, so just nudge someone next to you, say, only Jesus can save, and this is God's idea. Okay, so try and lock that in your brain as we go through, because this is the big message of the verses that we've just read. Only Jesus can save, and this is God's idea. And to help us understand what's going on in this 
passage we've just read, we need to understand something about letter writing. Now, just wave at me if you're old enough to have ever written a letter to anybody. All right, for the, for the uninitiated, for those maybe under the age, I don't know, I'm not going to pick an age because I'll offend someone. But if you're under a certain age, a letter is you get a piece of paper, you get this thing called a pen. It has, like, it has ink inside the pen. You put it on the paper, you, you apply pressure and you write words. You then send it by snail mail and it arrives through someone's letterbox and they open it and they read your letter. That's a letter. I've written a few of my time. Uh, I've still got all of the letters actually from when Carol and I were courting and going out. I know. I nearly brought some with me, <laughs> but I decided not to. Um, I didn't want to put myself through that. But I've still got them all because in those days, I didn't have a mobile phone. I didn't even have money to use the pay phone. <laughs> so we wrote letters to each other. And so when you're reading books like Galatians, you need to understand that you're reading a letter. Okay, It's correspondence between two parties, and you're only hearing one side of the conversation. That's what's going on in a letter. And of course, when you turn to the pages of Scripture, if you're going to understand what you're reading, you need to understand what genre of literature you're reading to help you understand it. Because the Bible is 66 books, it's all breathed by God, but it's all very different from one another. So the Bible, for example, in the Bible is made up of some books that are poetry, some books are prophecy, some books are narrative and story, some books are history, there's law books, there's wisdom books, there's parables, there's apocalyptic books like Revelation, which paint these massive pictures of what's going to happen in the future, and then there's letters. So the important question we have to ask is when you're reading the Bible, what kind of literature am I reading? Because that makes a big difference to the reading of the Bible. So here's a great example. See if you can guess what kind of literature this next Bible verse is from. Now, these verses that we're going to read are from a conversation between a husband and his wife. So if we could just click the next slide up, please. Okay, so this is a conversation between a husband and his wife. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, and not one of them is alone. Now, what are we reading? Is, is this history? Is it law? No, it's a poem, <laughs> okay? This is a husband writing a poem to his wife, and for reasons that completely baffle me, this was a flattering comment <laughs> in the day when Solomon wrote it. He's like, darling, your hair is looking so goatee today. And... That sheep on the hillside, your teeth really remind me of that guy. That, that made his wife feel good. I don't know why. But it's poetry. Okay? You're not, not meant to read that and think, wow, Solomon's, Solomon's wife was like a goat. That's not the conclusion. You're meant to say, this is poetry. And so I read it like poetry. Well, it's the same when you come to a letter. You need to read it like a letter, which means that you don't just read the lines. You read what's in between the lines because it's a conversation between two parties. So you need to ask questions like, well, what's going on here? Why is he writing this letter? What was going on in the place that he's writing to? Why is he acting like this in the way that he writes? You know, so for example, to the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul, Paul comes off all warm and cuddly and cozy. He's like, when we were among you, we were like a nursing mother. We were gentle among you. We cared for you like you were our own children. And you're like, wow. And then he writes to the Galatians and he's like, you idiots. Who has bewitched you? Why are you turning to a different gospel? Same guy writing two very, very different letters. 
And so the question we ask is why? What's going on? Why is he writing in this particular way? You've got to fill in the lines between the lines. And of course, Paul also, as Simon said last week, he indicates as he's writing this letter that he is seriously very worried about something with the Galatian church. He was the one who went amongst them preaching Jesus. And now he's writing several years later saying, guys, I am seriously worried about what's happening to you. I'm seriously, seriously worried. And we get that even from the way he introduces his letter. So if you were writing an ancient letter, firstly, to write an ancient letter was incredibly expensive. So you didn't send many letters because you had to buy a large piece of parchment that you'd then roll up and send off. It was, it was expensive. And so there were four pieces of ancient etiquette when it came to writing a letter. Four things that you always did at the start of an ancient letter in Paul's day. Number one, you say your name. I, Paul. Number two, who are you writing the letter to? To the churches in Galatia. So the first thing you see is you're unrolling your parchment. I, Paul, to the churches in Galatia. Step three, you give your greetings. Every nationality has their own greetings. And Paul, as he writes, he says, grace and peace to you in Jesus Christ. Natural greetings. It's like, hello, how are you? How's your family? Natural greetings. And then step number four in every letter in ancient etiquette was you said something nice and encouraging about the people you wrote the letter to, particularly if you were going to say something nasty later on. <laughs> so Paul, you know, he, he writes, for example, to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians are an absolute crazy hot mess. Okay, they are getting drunk on the communion wine. They're sleeping with each other's families. They are crazy. And yet, he spends half of chapter one encouraging them for how great they are. And he does that in every letter except one, the letter to the Galatians. He does step one, Paul. He does step two to the church in Galatia. Step three, grace and peace. Step four, completely misses it altogether. And he says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting God and turning to a different gospel. <laughs> and this is the why of this particular letter. They had begun to turn to a gospel that wasn't the gospel at all. And Paul is trying to address that as he writes this letter to them. And the first thing that we see he does in the verses we've read today is that he wants to remind them that the gospel is God-given good news. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He is firstly wanted to say, listen, I didn't make up this gospel that I preached to you. I got it from God, and it is actually the gospel, which means good news. Good news. Now, the word gospel might mean all sorts of things to different ones of us today. Gospel for you might be a genre of music. Sometimes we talk about speaking the gospel truth, which means that what we say is trustworthy or reliable. Sometimes when we say, oh, he's preaching the gospel, we mean he's explaining to someone how to become a Christian. Gospel can mean all sorts of different things to us. And Paul here is reminding them what the true gospel, the good news is. And, you know, Simon wonderfully unpacks these eight truths about what the gospel is. It was so rich. I encourage you to go and listen to that again. And if I was to summarize all of those eight points, I would say this. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. Okay? And just say that again. The gospel is not good advice about good behavior. It's an announcement. It's good news. Like, you've won the lottery. Way! 
Your lost puppy's been found. Hooray! Your cancer's gone. Yeah! It's good news. It's an announcement. You know, you think about Winston Churchill on the day that the Second World War ended. People all around the Commonwealth and different nations gathered around their radios waiting to hear his announcement. And then he says the, the long-awaited words, the war is over. And what happened? People spontaneously spilled out of their homes onto their streets and they just began to celebrate because it was the best news that they had been waiting for. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's good news. And I would suggest to you that perhaps many Christians have subtly changed the good advice, the good news into good advice. You know, good things like how should a Christian pray? How do Christians give? How do Christians become more like Jesus? Uh, how do Christians talk to one another? How should Christians live? Uh, fasting, praying, worshiping. Now, all these things are brilliant things. They're great pieces of good advice, but they in themselves are not the gospel that Paul preached. The gospel that he preached had nothing to do with what you or I contribute to the story. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already accomplished and done for you. That's the gospel. It's about God and about his decision to send his son for you. That's the gospel and it's good news. And the disciples, the early church, were so changed by this good news, they just wanted to announce it to as many people as possible. The war is over. The war is over. Victory is won. Jesus is risen. He's alive. He was dead, but now he's alive. Did you hear the good news? He's alive. And because of that news, their whole lives were changed. The gospel is good news. I'm going to read this quote and then explain the quote after I've read it. N.T. Wright says this about the good news, the gospel he says, the good news is that the one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus and his death and resurrection. The ancient hopes have indeed been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. He has grasped the world in a new way to sort it out and fill it with his glory and justice as he always promised. But he's done it in a way beyond the wildest dreams of prophecy the ancient sickness that has crippled the whole world which is sin and humans with it has been cured at last so that new life can rise up in its place life has come to life and is pouring out like a mighty river into the world in the form of a new power the power of love the good news was and is that all this has happened in and through Jesus and that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all of creation and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. This is the Christian gospel. Do not allow yourself to be fobbed off with anything less. What's he saying? He's saying this. The gospel is not simply about how you can have your sins forgiven by Jesus personally. It is that, but it's that on a much, 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 much bigger cosmic canvas. God is making the world right. He's making the whole cosmos right. And you and I live between the victory of Jesus on the cross and the final celebration when he returns and wipes away every tear, cures every sickness, puts every wrong things to right and makes a brand new heavens and earth and we celebrate with him for eternal glory. We live between the victory and the celebration. That's the gospel. God is making everything new. Everything new. And this is good news. 
This is good news for the hopeless. It's good news for the broken. It's good news for the confused. It's good news for the religious. It's good news for the irreligious. It's good news for those in the kingdom and those outside of the kingdom. This is good news, folks. You've probably got someone in your life that needs good news. Well, this is the best news that you can tell them. Christ has conquered. It's about what he has done. And, and Paul goes on to say this, that remember that this gospel that I preached to you, I didn't make it up. It's not man-made. I didn't kind of conjure up this idea about Jesus on a cross and what happened because of him. This was revelation from Jesus. Now again, remember you're reading a letter. You've got to ask yourself the question, why does Paul feel it important to say that? Why? Why is he emphasizing that point? And the reason is because of this guy on your screen. This guy is Caesar Augustus. He was the very first Roman emperor in the Roman Empire. And after 13 years of civil war in the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus finally brought peace to the Roman Empire. It's what historians call the Pax Romana, peace across all of Rome. And this is the guy who was ruling at the time that Jesus was born. The first Roman emperor. And because of his victory, people began to revere Augustus as both man and God. He was divine. He wasn't just human. He was divine in their eyes. And they began to worship Caesar. Here's just a, an excerpt from uh, a placard, an inscription that was found at the time of Caesar. And it reads this, just to give you an idea. And just notice how close to the gospel this sounds. It reads this, the most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, a savior who has made wars cease and who should put everything in peaceful order. Paul is speaking into this context where people are thinking that a man is God. An inscription found again near the time uh, details a moment where they decided because of Caesar, they wanted to align all of the Roman calendars into one. All the different countries and all the different empires to align around Caesar's birthday, which was in August. Caesar Augustus. And we find a, uh, an inscription commemorating that moment in Western Turkey and it said this, the birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. See, people say you shouldn't mix religion and politics, but Paul did it all the time. He's making an overtly political statement. He is saying there is only one gospel worth throwing your whole life into, and it's the gospel about Jesus. My gospel is not man-made. I got it by revelation from heaven. There is only one emperor, and his name is Jesus, and he is king of kings, and he's lord of lords, and one day he's going to return. He is the emperor of the whole cosmos. There is one gospel, Galatians, one gospel, and it's about Jesus. Friends, I wonder if you're putting your faith in the right good news. Are you putting your faith in the right good news? You know, there are all sorts of 
functional saviors that will promise to save you in some way. A better body, a better house, a better life, a better spouse, a better income, better status, better qualifications, better standing in the community, going to church regularly, leading a small group, saying your prayers. There are all sorts of things that will promise because of those things, you will be in right standing with God and they are all false gospels. There is one gospel, only Jesus can save. Only Jesus <laughs> Friends, are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in him? You may be here and maybe you don't yet know Jesus. Friends, there's an invitation today to come in, to know him, not to jump through religious hoops, but to simply trust the good news. Jesus has done it for you. The second thing Paul goes on to say is, Salvation happens from the inside out, not the outside in. He says this phrase to them, he says, God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What's Paul doing there? Well, he's pushing back against the idea that we need Jesus plus other religious requirements to belong to God's family. See, the Galatians had started to preach this version of the gospel. It's a perversion of the real version. But they would say this, you need to trust in Jesus, but also follow all of the Jewish customs. So if you're a man, get circumcised, follow the Sabbath, follow Pentecost, follow the Feast of Tabernacles, eat the right kosher food laws, and keep all the Mosaic law. Then God will welcome you into his family. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That is not the gospel I preached to you. It's Jesus plus none of those things. Jesus plus none of those things. Your belonging is not because of some external rite or religious ritual by what you wear or where you go or what you eat. You belong to Jesus simply by the grace of God alone. He chose me. He revealed himself in me before he did anything on the outside of me. That's the Christian gospel, a God who saves us from the inside out. Salvation is an inside job. I was thinking just this morning of a good friend of mine called John, who I knew in uh, Newcastle, and I was in a small group with John uh, just after he gave his life to Christ in prison. And John's story was that he grew up in a notorious crime family in Newcastle. His father was a very, very well-known criminal in Newcastle, criminal family. And uh, he had a very, very traumatic upbringing, saw lots of things that he shouldn't have seen. And ultimately, his life went off the rails very quickly. And by the time he was 19, he'd been in seven separate prisons in the northeast of England, and he was addicted to heroin. And a friend, a Christian friend around that time found him and said, John, Jesus can deliver you from heroin. And he said, I remember at the time thinking, who the heck is Jesus? He said, I grew up on an council estate in Newcastle. No one ever talks about God. Who the heck is Jesus? How's he gonna get rid of heroin addiction? But he said this thought stuck with him from this conversation. And then fast forward, he was 25 in a prison, coming off heroin, he's on methadone in excruciating pain in his prison cell. His cellmate was asleep and he just remembered these words, John, Jesus can deliver you from heroin. And so he said in his cell, while his cellmate was asleep, he just cried out to God and he said, Jesus, if you're real, please come and take this pain away. And he said instantly the whole cell was filled with the power of the spirit. And he shook on his bed, like electricity going through from his head to his toes. And he said, just the power of God filled his cell. And he was instantly delivered from his heroin addiction. Never touched it ever again from that moment on as he gave his life to follow Jesus. And very soon after that, 
He felt God say to him, John, I don't just want to change your life, I want to use your life. I don't just want to change your life, I want to use your life. And John has been remarkably used by God ever since. So he's now been married for 20 years, got his own family, got his own building business. But also he and his wife have set up a charity called Junction 42, which takes the gospel into prisons up and down this country. They are now in 130 prisons up and down this country. And just to give you an idea, during COVID, apparently there are 88,000 people in prisons during COVID. 44,000 of them ticked a box when they got put in prison that they identified as a Christian. 44,000, right? Now, I'm not saying that they were Christians, but when they ticked the box of which religion, they ticked Christian. And so what Junction 42 and John and his wife Joanna did is that they created these story of hope packs that they literally got mailed into the cell of every single one of those 44,000 prisoners in our country to bring a message about the hope in Jesus. And many of those gave their lives to Christ. I heard just this morning from Mike and Ali, they used the same materials from my friend John just this morning with prisoners in Bedford Jail, and three of them gave their lives to Christ this morning. That started when God encountered my friend John in his prison cell in the Northeast. Because God is the only one that can change you from the inside out. No amount of self-help or therapy or self-improvement can deal with the problem of the human heart. Only God, only God can do that. John tells me this story of when he first prayed for an inmate who'd got released and came to one of their church services and he said he was mortal drunk, snot running down his face, just crying, just an absolute hot mess. And John just laid his hands on him and just prayed that the power of God would come on him. And he said instantly the power of God fell on this guy and he started speaking in tongues. And he's like, this guy's not even a Christian yet, Lord. I don't know if you're allowed to do this. And so he went away and started trying to figure it out. Like, God, you know, this guy's not even responded to the gospel and he's speaking in tongues and your power is resting on his life. And he felt the Lord say this to him. He said, John, why do you think I sent the Holy Spirit? I sent the Holy Spirit to change men. I didn't ask men to change first in order to receive the Spirit. That's the gospel. (laughs) Now what God starts in us does change the outside of us. But your acceptance into the family of God has nothing to do with religious rituals or externals. In fact, God came for the broken. He came for the have-nots. He came for the outsiders. He came for the rejected. He came for the forgotten. He came for the ones that know they can't do it in their own strength. He came for people, in short, like you and like me. Praise God. (laughs) That's the gospel. (laughs) That is the gospel. Let me just finish by quoting the great theologian Stormzy. He says this, like, wait right there, could you stop my verse? You saved this kid and I'm not your first. It's not by blood and it's not by birth, but oh my God, what a God I serve. Lord, I've been broken and although I'm not worthy, you fixed me. I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me.